I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Does it feel easy and comfortable to say, like, I'm happy, I like living alone? So the thing about that is I say that to people and they think it's like, oh, this person is like actually deeply lonely and like he's just saying this as a cover. Like they don't believe me. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Brandon Taylor is the author of two novels and a collection of short stories, and he's a voracious reader. And as you know, if you're still on Twitter, he has opinions. Sometimes people will ask me, what are you reading? And I'll have to make this choice of like, do I do I say nothing or do I tell them that I'm rereading Anna Karenina and loving it so much that I physically can't breathe sometimes? <laughs> and you just know that like, you can't tell them that because they're going to want to know like, Okay, but can you answer this question in a way that I personally can relate to and make some use of? (laughs) They don't want to hear Anna Karenina. They don't want to hear it. Brandon is 33. And until recently, he spent most of his adult life in and around academia. He initially went to grad school to pursue a PhD in biochemistry when he wrote a lot of what became his first book, Real Life. Then he left science to switch to writing and got an MFA at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Brandon is Black and gay, and he writes about outsiders of all kinds. The three books he's published so far take an intimate, incisive look at the ways isolation can bloom in the confines of college towns, and how race, class, and sexuality shape the particulars of loneliness there. His latest novel, The Late Americans, unfolds in Iowa City. And I'm telling you, the way he conjures the characters and power dynamics in a creative writing seminar, it is cutting. Brandon grew up in a very different environment, in a rural agricultural part of Alabama near Montgomery. I grew up on a farm in Alabama, and my whole family is from there many, many generations back. It was a farm that my grandfather owned. It was about um, five or so acres. And we grew collard greens, we grew corn, we grew black-eyed peas, we had chickens, sometimes we had goats. Um, And it was a farm not to, to grow things to sell, but it was a farm to grow things to eat. And in the winter, um, we would go into the woods and cut trees for firewood because we had a wood-burning stove. 
for most of our heating purposes. And so it felt like a much slower kind of life, than the, especially than the one I live now. Um, and both of my parents come from two very large families that had known each other for decades and decades. My parents were neighbors growing up. So when they got married and had me, that meant that I was related to basically everybody in like for miles. Um, which also was great in the sense of like raising a kid takes a community, but it was not great in the sense that like if I did if I did anything within like a hundred square mile radius, someone was gonna call my grandma and and tell on me. And so it was um in some ways like a very idyllic uh childhood and a place to grow up. And in other ways it was crushing, grinding American poverty. So it wasn't quite so idyllic at all. Mm-hmm. Did you work at the farm? Like did you is it is is being out in a garden, for example, something that feels nice now? Yeah. Well, I mean, familiar? It felt, yeah, it felt I mean it even felt nice then. I loved um going out with my grandpa before school every every morning before school, checking the fields, checking the chickens, tossing the feed to the chickens, looking after the different animals. There was an order to things. Um, and I still, I mean, I still miss it. And I I still, when I think of like an ideal living situation, it's like out with all the trees <laughs> in the woods. Uh-huh. Um, when you think about that ideal living situation, are there a lot of people around you? Or are you by yourself in the woods? I think I'm mostly by myself in the woods. I think I am, I mean, I, I had a lot of cousins, as I said, but I also... Um, there, there was a time in my childhood starting around when I was like 12 or so when I um, was just like so different from everybody else that I ended up spending a lot of time playing with sticks by myself in my own front yard. Um, and I think I cultivated a real sense of aloneness so that now I feel, I never feel more myself than when I am like by myself feeling just like a little lonely. That is like my optimal state of being. And as he got older, Brandon found a surefire way to transport himself to that optimal state of being a little lonely by reading. It was like love at first sight with books. And I don't think that I became aware of having strong opinions about books until I got to high school and we would read these books and then debate them because I don't know what I was doing. I must have been very checked out during the other parts of my literary English education as a student because I don't remember like almost coming to blows with someone over a book until I was like in ninth grade and we were reading Romeo and Juliet and I would just be like, are we reading the same play? <laughs> I just remember getting so heated um, just hearing people be wrong about Romeo and Juliet. I, I want to make sure I'm following. What is the correct interpretation of Romeo and Juliet? Well, well so, <laughs> just so we're on the same page. I guess like, so the context here is that I grew up in a very evangelical, like part of Alabama, like, very evangelical. And so like, as you know, in Romeo and Juliet, there's like, a, you know, like they both die and all that other stuff. And there were people who were like, well, Obviously, they're going to hell because they committed suicide. And oh, I was wow. like, I was like, first of all, no, they're not. And second of all, they did it because they were clearly driven to this by 
you know, the, 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 the wheels of fate and, like, they're clearly bound by forces beyond their control. And these, like, children of libertarian Southerners were like, no, 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 they made these choices. They are going to hell. Like, all this. And I was so mad. Also, like, in my own mind, I was, like, writing, like, queer fanfic between, like, Benvolio and, like, Mercutio. And I had a whole thing. <laughs> And they were like, that is not how you read, because when you read, it's only about what is on the paper. And I'm like, no, 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 it's in the text. It's clearly there. And they're like, you think everything is about being gay. And I'm like, well, it is. Um, At the time, I didn't know why I felt that way, but I would get so mad. And I would channel it into these, like, very furious in-class essays. (laughs) I love that. And also you're debating very basic ideas about how the world world works. Uh Like if you blame people for tragic endings or if you see the systems that created bad outcomes. Um, Oh, yeah. And you're debating this in ninth grade English class. Yes, we were were really arguing about these things. I would get, I would get, teacher would have to be like, Brandon, let's calm down. (laughs) Let's calm down. (laughs) Um, Oh, my gosh. I wish we were in the same high school English class. That sounds incredible. You know, I felt like I, as much as I was like very vocal in class, I felt like I got argued down a lot because I was always in the minority (laughs) on a lot of stuff. But it felt like when I was writing, I could like, I felt like when I was writing that the paper would hear me out no matter what, that the paper would be like, okay, like, let's hear what you have to say. And and I felt really free and it felt like I was, I mean, it was the closest thing I had to flying, I felt like, because I, I felt like my mind would be on fire and like racing with all these ideas and I would just like sit down and like write them and I would hand in at the end of the class period, like a 15 page essay that I had written <laughs> and my teacher would be like, well, that is certainly a lot of pages <laughs> that you have, <laughs> that you have done. Um, and it. What? What interesting feedback. I know. Well, I mean, and the teachers, they would read them and they would give me, I mean, my teachers, I had really great teachers and they would give me a lot of encouragement and they'd say like, this is really beautifully expressed and like you are turning some really beautiful and useful phrases and um, and they were really encouraging of my writing. But I, I, I just thought I was like having my say. I felt like finally having my say because it just felt like, oh, I could, I could make anything make sense when I was writing. Outside of the classroom, he found a place for his writing and enthusiasm on the internet. It was the early 2000s, and Brandon posted on message boards and took part in role-playing communities for the books and TV shows he loved, like the anime show Dragon Ball Z, Pokemon, or the Harry Potter series. My first online username was BlackGohan12, because I was obsessed with Dragon Ball Z and I was 12 years old. Um, And I... I got on American Online and I found these like message boards and um, email like uh, chat rooms and I would just like hang out there and talk to people from all over the world and it felt, I don't know, I felt like I was finally meeting people who were like me and who wouldn't treat me the way that I was being treated in my own family, which is like a kind of annoying person. And then Facebook happened and Twitter happened and I felt myself leave this kind of role-playing online community and enter into, like, social media, <laughs> which is a very different phase of, of online life. And I went from a person who was, like, performing 
these like characters I was creating to performing myself online. And that's sort of where I am now, which is the sort of late social media phase of digital life. I notice that you're still hanging out on Twitter. (laughs) And I wonder if it feels sad to you to, to be in a space that was very different and that is changing and that feels like it's not as fun mm. as it, I mean, obviously Twitter's a lot of things, but it used to be fun. Um, and and if you feel like a sadness about that, when you open up the app and you go to like write your series of, of fun tweets um, <laughs> and there's less people there. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> What it reminds me of is um, the, the sort of message board phase of my life when I would be in these active like message board role plays and it would have like a setting and a theme and there'd be like dozens of people using them on any given day and it was a lot of fun. And you could feel when it started to die and it was like the fun, cool place to be just stopped being cool and the whole board would die. And all the friends you made there, you'd have to like gather them up and try to keep, you know, your connection going. And some of the most important people in my life I met on those message boards and now I can't even remember their names, but they were so crucial to keeping me alive then. And that's sort of what Twitter reminds me of now, which is you can feel that it's dying and it feels kind of heartbreaking because I some of some of my closest friends I met through Twitter and so much of my career I think is possible because of Twitter and that's really surreal and I think it might just be a sad relic like a beautiful mall that used to be a hub and now it's just a sad empty mall coming up Brandon moves to the Midwest for grad school and is alone for the first time as an adult. It's that kind of relief that comes from realizing like, oh, nobody can tell me what to do. I am in charge of my own life. I get to decide my own path. I felt really powerful. And then I was like, well, what am I going to do if no one's in charge of me? Can we get an adult in this room, please? With what seems like an endless amount of information at our fingertips, we tend to forget that wondering about things is really part of the journey to finding answers we're looking for. So when it comes to the hot topics of Israel, Judaism, and Zionism, there's so much to wonder about right now that it's hard to know where to turn. Enter the latest weekly podcast from Unpacked, Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam. Join hosts and educator extraordinaires Michal Biton and Noam Weissman as they tackle these topics and the uncomfortable questions that surround them with the goal of working towards the answers together with their listeners. No matter where you're from, if you've ever wondered about anything, this is the podcast for you. So check it out. Subscribe to Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam on your favorite podcast app today. Wondering Jews is brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Brandon Taylor moved to New York in 2021 in his early 30s, just after his first novel, Real Life, was published to much acclaim. It made him a literary celebrity, which was quite a change from when he'd been writing deeply personal essays about his family, childhood trauma, and sexuality just to get published. But Brandon told me success and finally being done with school 
have come with their own shades of loneliness. I've just been through, I guess, like a decade of graduate school. And the thing about graduate school is it is like full of these like liminal transition states in life. Like you meet these people and you know them for like five, six years. You live in the same place. And then you perhaps will never see them again. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea of like meeting people and coming to mean something to each other and then never seeing them again, never talking to them again. um, Like that feels like the the dominant social strategy of my of the last decade of my life and i feel like now that i'm living in in a city in new york in a place in a hopefully more permanent phase of life i'm now thinking like oh how do i build connections with people again that that will be more longer lasting another thing brandon's had to figure out how to manage his money Since he left home, he's supported himself not with regular paychecks, but with bigger payments he has had to stretch out over time. Now they come from speaking fees and selling books, but they started with student loan checks. When I was an undergrad, um, the money was dispersed in these chunks, uh, you know, financial aid and stuff like that. When I was in grad school, we had like a, a... a yearly stipend that was divided into like nine month or nine month sections. And there was no, there's very little summer pay. And when I was in graduate school for creative writing, um, that stipend was about $10,000 less. And again, it was divided into these like monthly disbursements. Um, And it wasn't until I started publishing books that I felt like I was getting like chunks to live on <laughs> that I would then sort of divide out and and pay horrific taxes on. Um, and so that's more or less what I, how I've been living ever since. Have you, have you found like learning how to manage your money when you have had to figure out how to stretch it, like at least over a month um, or what to do when you get a, a, a book payment? Like how have you figured out how to do that for yourself? Oh, a lot of trial and error. I think uh, before my first book contract payment came in like the late summer of 2018, I had no money. I had nothing. I had spent all my money on moving to Iowa City. I had like nothing in my bank account. When that first book payment chunk came, I was like, this is the most money I've ever seen in my whole life. It was not that much money, but it felt like a lot of money. And I spent it all on catching up bills and doing all this other stuff. And I now regret that so, so much. Like, what was the regret there? I just want to make sure I was understanding what you meant. Yeah. What happened was I paid off those debts, but then I ended up going into a bit of credit card debt because suddenly all the money that I've been counting on as a windfall I had used up, you know, I sort of got into a cycle and I was like, you know, maybe I should have strategized more here. Mm. I should have mm-hmm. been more strategic. There's probably a way to pay it off that did not immediately generate more debt <laughs> for myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, I so know that. That sense of like, oh, I just want to get my head back above water and get these debts wiped off. Yes. And now I have no cash yes. reserves whatsoever. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So like my regret is mostly that. That is my regret, that I just sort of like reacted out of a sense of panic and that I didn't, <laughs> that I didn't like think ahead and then, you know, I turned in the book and I got a second chunk and I was like, okay, I'm going to spend this right. I did not spend it right. Like, it just went so quickly. And I was like, where is all of this money going? And I felt like if I were an undergrad still, I would know how to spend this money, like, very slowly. 
So I had to like learn slowly how to like how to like manage the money better. And and what's weird is like for my second book contract, I felt like I knew how to handle the money better. And when I had more money, suddenly people wanted to give you more money. It's so strange. When you don't need money, that's when people want to give you more. And I was like, where was this five? Like who people? Well, so so I was recently offered a speaking engagement. And at first I thought they were paying me $1,500 plus, you know, travel and all this other stuff. And I told my agent, I was like, yeah, that sounds fine. I'll do it. And then she's like, great. They want to know if you want it 10000 up front and 5000 later or what. And I was like, what do you mean? It's $1,500. And I was like, oh, no, these people want to pay me $15,000 to go to a place and talk for 45 minutes and then sign some books and then come home. And I was like, what in the world? <laughs> like, 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 what in the I am not appre- I'm not that appreciably better at my job than I was five years ago. I am better, to be clear. I am better. But, like, <laughs> like, nobody's paying Brandon Taylor in 2018 to do that. But they will pay Brandon Taylor in 2020-something to do that. Whereas when I was, you know, like, when I was a struggling early-on writer... They'd be like, do you want to write an essay about your worst memory? Here's $200. <laughs> you know? Do you look back at that writing that you did when you were writing personal essays for 200 bucks a pop? Do you do you have regrets about that? <laughs> uh, yes. I do have some regrets about that writing. But one thing I do feel grateful for is that as desperate as I felt, there's there are certain kinds of essays I did not write. And there are certain opportunities that came my way that I that I turned down because they were not they were not in line with my aesthetic values and my personal values. I mostly just regret being a blabbermouth about my personal life. Um, I don't regret the art. There are some essays that I just know probably would have gone viral and would have made me feel sick to my stomach to have written now, and I'm glad I did not write them. One expense that is important to Brandon is living alone. When he moved to Iowa six years ago, he found his first solo apartment, and he's lived alone ever since, though he's learned that that can have its downsides. I spent a lot of time reading and going on walks and talking to myself, which was nice because I I used to do that all the time as a kid and I feel like I stopped talking to myself when other people were around. But it did make it did make friendships feel I think a little more intense because when I would hang out with a friend, I'd go home and feel so heartbroken and bereft, you know, because I'm like by myself and they're going back to their partner or their pet or whatever. And I'm just like by myself. The other thing that happened is I think people, I think, you know, when you're single, but you have a roommate, people know what to do with you. But when you're single and you live alone, I felt that I was lower in the estimation of my friends because I was both single and lived alone. Hmm. And and I feel like I noticed it most when um, I started dating someone and I dated them for about a year. 
And when I broke up with that person, I felt myself slide lower in my friend's estimation. And I was like, what is materially different about like my life situation now versus like two months ago? Like my life situation is the same as when they first became my friend. And I realized that when I had a partner, they were treating me better. And what were, can you give me an example of some of the markers of feeling that slide of of not feeling as, you know, high up on the hierarchy? I mean, I felt myself, you know, like I, you know, they would ask me to things less. Um, I would get invited out less. When they talked about me, they would, you know, before it, when I'd meet them, they'd ask me like, oh, how are you? And then it would be like, and how is how's your partner? How is your life? They would ask me all these like very interested questions and in my life. And then when I broke up with with my partner, they were like, so how are things going? I'd be like, oh, things are great. Like, you know, I'm, I'm having a great time. I, I'll tell them, I'll catch them up on my life events. And then they'll be like, but what about your personal life? Like, are you seeing someone? Like, how is that going? And like the heat of their interest is mostly located in whether or not I am dating and like the ongoing saga of that. And I'm just like, I just told you like four really good things that are really cool. (laughs) (laughs) You know, as just somebody who's a consumer of the way you write and the way that you present on social media, like, it is very clear to me that there is a lot of passion in your life, mm. you know? Like, there's a lot of things that you love desperately, and it takes a lot of different forms. Like, I was not an English major person. Whenever anybody mentions the last names of authors that I don't recognize, I find it very snobby and pretentious sounding. And somehow the way you communicate about authors and the way and your love for them or your, like, uh, the things that you have quibbles with, like, it's... It always sounds like very smart and also inviting. And um, I love that. Uh, uh, I hope you tell more people that you can't move because you're rereading it. <laughs> no, well, I mean, I'm it's just amazing. <laughs> it's really gratifying hearing you say that because, I mean, I was also not an English major. I grew up science, brain only mostly. And I feel like I came to these books very late. And I do think that one of the great things about that is that I got to come to them on my own terms. Mm. And nobody was telling me I had to read this capital G great novel. And I think a lot of times people who maybe have felt scared off from these books, they see that, that it is possible to have like a kind of personal connection with these books in a way that isn't sort of like, you don't have to know what all the words are, that you can just kind of like read them and find delight in them. I was sort of doing a a buddy read of Jane Eyre. It was like me and the internet were like reading Jane Eyre last, last fall or something. And there are people who picked that book up for the first time because they saw those tweets and they were like, I never knew that it had all this stuff in it. And I thought it was so fusty and blah, blah, blah. And if I'd known this, I would have read this a long time ago. I'm like, how amazing is that? That like these people who maybe felt excluded from these authors before because I'm just making, I'm just being chaotic and antic online. I'm never trying to be pretentious or smart. I'm always just trying to be like, 
honest about what moves me or what I find funny or what I find silly. Some of the most moving moments of my life recently have been people saying that I got into this author because of you. I didn't really know what to expect, but now I really, really love this author too. What else should I, (laughs) should I, should I read? It's so, I don't know. It's like really special. That's writer Brandon Taylor. You can find his latest novel, The Late Americans, wherever you get your books. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Afi Yellow Duke. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azule, Lindsay Foster Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Christian Reedy. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at AmosSalePicks, that's P-I-C-S. And the show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Linda Duquette-Peterson in Washington, D.C. for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. Join Linda and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. Brandon is still a dedicated real-time chronicler of his passions online. Though he admits it can be startling when his online friends find him in person. I was walking in Central Park the other day and somebody stopped and said that they had read a tweet of mine. And I was like, I mean, it's so strange. Like, you get stopped on the street not because I've written books or whatever. It's because people have read tweets. Was it a good tweet that... that that they remember? <laughs> they liked it. Whatever it was, I don't know what the tweet was. I was like, how do I channel that attention to my long-form work? But yeah, New York is not as anonymous as I would hope. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.